I think we should show our appreciation to the worship team, don't you? I'm so thankful for them, and they represent, you know, many other people who serve us week in and week out uh, on our worship team, and it's a blessing. I mean, did you see like different faces up there in the same spirit week after week? It's amazing. Um, take out your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. Uh, my name's Colby, I'm one of the pastors here. If our third through fifth grade has not dismissed, I would encourage them to go ahead. Uh, but you can be dismissed third through fifth graders to your class. We are going to jump into our series. We've been just working our way through Romans, and we come to this passage this morning. And like we always do, we just pick up where we left off. We read it together. We study and understand it, unpack it, and apply it to our lives. And so this is what God has chosen for us to set our attention on today. The beginning in verse 24 of Romans chapter 1. It says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Father, we pause ourselves, having heard your words, to open our hearts to you. Lord, we pray for the clarity of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you might give me wisdom as I declare your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to the ways in which you want us to be rooted in a confidence in your gospel's transformational power and how you want to move us from being ashamed of your good news to trusting its power bring people into a deep relationship with it that changes everything about how they saw life before. So Lord, we have confidence in that. We put our hope in it. And we ask that your spirit would ignite our hearts with a holy sense of the sacredness of your word and our need to be shaped by it and hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it's best to get directly to the point. The passage today deals with the subject that some of you may find uncomfortable and challenging. I recognize that. It's not lost on me that this represents one of the areas of scripture that is most out of step with the cultural pressures of our time. I don't have to spend any time convincing you of that fact, and so I'm not going to do so. In just the same manner, I likewise am not going to spend any time apologizing for what the scriptures teach here on the matter of same-sex relationships, particularly romantic gay and lesbian relationships, which it mentions clearly here in the text. I will make you this promise and provide kind of a preliminary explanation. 
For this morning, I would like to invite us to devote ourselves not to what Colby Garman believes about a particularly challenging cultural issue, that we wouldn't devote ourselves to what Pillar Church teaches about the issue, because neither of those things are the scope primarily of our conversation and why we gather together. The question is, what does this passage in God's word clearly express? And how should that shape our understanding of God's expectations for how we shape our lives in response to it? And so maybe, maybe you're here and you're skeptical about what Christians believe about this subject and uh, you're sort of basically ready to tune out. And I, I just want to appeal to you for a second. One of the best things that you could do is develop a deep understanding of what the Bible says and what it doesn't say on this subject. And it may help you understand why it is that Christians uh, have certain beliefs. So I want to say that. I, th I think it's important that we study God's word and understand it clearly. And maybe here today, you need to rest in understanding that. And you'll just take a, a step towards understanding why, why Christians are passionate about not just this subject, but ordering our lives and our sexuality around God's word and God's design. I think you could, you could learn that today and understand Christians better as a result of it. Maybe you're here and as a Christian, you felt a sense of shame about this subject or confusion, uncertainty uh, about how to approach it. And today, I, I hope that what we can do is at least from God's word, begin to see and understand that, that this, uh, the way that it's presented here is that we're dealing with a symptom of a problem and the deeper problem all of us share in. And that, that more importantly, we need to really think about the deeper effects of sin on our lives uh, before we go out and think about the deep effects of sin on other people's lives, okay? And that's important. Furthermore, today, I, I hope that in some manner you might see the power and hope of the gospel held out as we understand this and all the topics related to it in this passage. But even as we consider the challenging topic embedded in the passage, it's important that we see it as a part of a larger conversation that Paul is introducing about the condition of our world in relation to God. The, the condition of our hearts in relation to God. The description here, God gave them up. We should hear that this is us in our state apart from Christ. Left to our own sin and our own devices. He's not describing someone out there. He's describing the way sin universally affects all of human, uh, humankind. Paul is introducing this condition. And in a sense, in this passage, Paul is most concerned with how sin has disconnected us from God. And what it looks like when we build an entire life with little thought toward God's role in, in, in instructing us about how we flourish and fulfill our calling in his creation. It's quite possible for us to build the majority of our lives around our own wisdom rather than around God's instruction and disconnect sin from the, the fact that God greatly desires for us to flourish in every aspect of our relationship. We don't have some subdivide between what's spiritual and the rest of our lives. God, the creator of all things, takes interest in helping us flourish in every aspect and therefore, he holds the authority by being our designer and creator to instruct us about what kind of world we found ourselves in. So, that's what's happening here. As a warning and picture of God's ultimate judgment on sin, this passage is telling us that God, in a sense, has allowed us to have a taste of the brokenness of sin in a myriad of ways. 
we are experiencing the way he describes it, Paul describes it here, a sort of mini-judgment in which we are given an opportunity to repent and be saved. That, that what has happened is, as sin has entered into the world, God's judgment has been revealed, he says in verse 18. And it's observable that things are broken and wrong and off, and we know it. And we can observe it in the way that things are working out in the world. But, but really, Paul's going to unpack and say, this is sort of a warning judgment. He's allowing us a greater taste of sin and its effects so that we would see how serious it is and turn to Jesus for grace, mercy, salvation, and hope. You see, that's what he's doing here. I can remember a friend of mine growing up telling a story about how he had stolen some snuff, which is country talk for chewing tobacco. And I'm from the rural northern Pennsylvania. Stuff like Skull and Copenhagen. When he was caught, in an effort to dissuade him from future use, his dad made him take a dip of it and put it in his lip and keep doing that over and over and over. Until my friend hated it and never wanted it again. Some of you might have a story like that in your life. It's a parenting technique, right? <laughs> I'm not sure I would always recommend it, right? Like, it's always in good you know, standing. But there's something, there's an impulse there, isn't there? To, when we don't understand the implications and the consequences of something, when we trivialize them, sometimes allowing it to run free a bit more exposes the ugliness of it, exposes the effects of it. See, three times in this passage, Paul says God gave them up. It's, it's, it's this description, a, a sort of giving, fr giving sin sort of a freedom to flourish in the world so that we come to see sin as not trivial, particularly our sin as not trivial, and we turn to God for hope and salvation. So we don't become convinced we just need a little tweaking and we're otherwise good, but we realize at the depths of who we are, every aspect of us needs God's saving, redeeming, Holy Spirit work to transform us. That's what's going on here, and that's really the theme of this passage. You'll notice three times it's split up by this idea that God gave them up. And it brings, uh, brings to mind the main idea of the passage. What does it look like when God gives us over to our sin? And that is what Paul is laying out so we can see the effects of sin and why we need to turn to Christ. He answers the question in three sections of this passage. What does that look like in our world? And he's just observing our world that we live in. And he was doing it in the first century and not much has changed. So we're going to jump into it. We're going to see in each of those sections, what does it look like when God gives us over to our sin? The first answer to the question we find in verse 24. We start with the creature rather than the creator. We start with the creature rather than the creator. In this passage, there's a deeper exchange that takes place that opens all of us up to the effects of sin as well as participation in it in ways that he describes are dishonorable. It is really the exchange of the honor and glory of the creator for a focus on honoring the creature that is taking place. We started reading in verse 24 today, but you can hear it as early as verse 22. Look at Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 22, and notice the word. You could underline it or circle if you take notes in your Bible. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. He's talking about idolatry, isn't he? He's like bringing God down to something that we can represent. 
But look at verse 24. He continues this idea. So now in case we think of it just as idolatry explicitly, worshiping idols or statues, Paul shows that it's also really an idolatry of the heart, a change to a creature-centered view of life from a creator-centered view of life. In verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And so now he's just talking about sin in general, right? To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We sin in our bodies and with our bodies. Because they exchanged, there's the word again, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. His gloriousness, his priority, his, his authority, and ultimately his goodness. They exchanged that for a lie, and listen to how he describes it, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So what it looks like when God gives us over to our sin, we experience this sort of letting it run free, is we begin to think first, what does the creature want? We start there. So anytime we do that, we, in life and in culture, we should go, oh, that's like an act of God's judgment, that we would even think that way. That we would start with, how do I feel? What are my desires? What do I want? Before we ask the question, what has God done? How, how, how have I wronged him? And what do I need to, to submit to in terms of his instruction? What has God designed me for? And so what he's saying here is, is as they are given up, they, they've moved from this version where we say, God deserves first say in my life to I do. My sense of inner wisdom and my feelings and my desires deserve first say. This is what happens when God gives us up. So when we're deciding how to live in regards to important things in our life, we start with our feelings, our passions and desires, and we make them ultimate. We baptize them as pure and sacred, and we serve them at all costs. And God changes positions, and we include his instruction if it fits our priorities. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, what we see in life, isn't it? So the meaning here, here's the point, and don't miss this, sin in our life not only represents an exchange of worship and service that demotes the creator, Catch this, it further produces the exchange in us. Let me say that again. Sin in our life doesn't just represent an exchange of worship and service that demotes the creator. It's not just sort of, it represents where we're at. It further produces that exchange in us to where we become more and more committed to serving the creature rather than the creator. It changes us. So, so one of the reasons I would say to you as a Christian, don't give yourself over to sin of any kind, is it works this out in you. It begins to turn you more and more towards serving the creature rather than the creator. That happens every time. Therefore, sin is never trivial just because we know it can be forgiven at the cross. It is breaking us when we participate in it. So as we make the exchange, God gives us over to it. Similar to the fact that in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve reject God and, and his provision in the garden, they're set outside of it to tend to a world of their own making and discover what they, they've really rejected and introduced. Now, real quick, this gives us insight into our desires, doesn't it? How we should think about them, which have been affected by sin and this giving over. The passage describes the effect three times. The result is that we are not pure of heart and mind, 
our inward desires are not ordered around what is honorable. Look at the phrases that are used. He gave them over in the lust of their hearts and impurity. He gave them over to dishonorable passions. These are inward experiences, right? Powerful ones, it sounds like. He gave them over to a debased mind, a, a willing to rearrange what we already know. The result of our exchange of honoring the creator to serving the creature is all sorts of desires that are contrary to the creator's good purpose and design for our lives. That's the result of it. So just a bit of application. The first thing we need to think about is make sure in your life that you understand the gospel that has the power to save us calls us to recognize that what we need is to be shaped around God's priorities at every level of our life. An acknowledgement of sin and real repentance means that we recognize we need to be reshaped, restored, and renewed by the Creator. This is the gospel that we proclaim. Not that he needs to adjust to our sense of purpose or wisdom or desires. We need this reshaping work of God's word, his spirit, and his power that comes through surrendering ourselves to his will and experiencing the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our depths. The first step toward God is to acknowledge this exchange has taken place and call out to God for power to undo it in our life on every level. That's what the gospel calls us to. So the first thing that happens is we start with the creature rather than the creator. You can use that as you go through life and you're thinking about things. You think, am I starting with the creature or am I starting with the creator? As I deal with this issue, am I thinking about what the creature desires or am I thinking first about honoring and exalting God? That will help you sort out so many things in your life. The second thing, though, the Apostle Paul speaks of it now by giving a specific example as it relates to sexual desire. And the way that I would describe this section is what happens when we're given over? We unravel the order of creation. That's what he, that's what he shows. So we, we shift, you know, it's now about the creature, but then the created purposes of the world and created purposes of God's designs, we begin to unravel them. Not in a good way. So God has placed and, pur and purposed for sexual desire, and he, he's got a place for it. It sits in the context of a fundamental relational bond between husband and wife that is emphasized in creation from the very beginning. In his teaching on marriage, Jesus always comes back to the goodness and beauty of God's created order and purpose in marriage and sexuality. Listen to how he describes it in Mark 10, verse 6. But from the beginning, Jesus says, of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, because of that, because of God's order in creation a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh a, rep, a, a reference to sexuality there this one flesh union has at least in part an understanding of the connection of body and soul so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore god has joined together let not man separate right this is what Jesus has to say. Every time he opens his mouth about marriage, he goes back and roots it in creation. Notice the emphasis in Jesus' teaching on creation. The beauty of male and female complementarity that God designed in creation. The purpose given to sex as solidifying the union of two lives that will now be rooted in God's recognition of their union as one family and the instruction that we're not to separate from this joining together. That we're to honor it 
as far as it's under our control. The teaching of our passage at hand is to provide an example here in, as we look at verse 26 of the sort of thing that happens when we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We take some things clear and ordered in creation for God's purposes and we reverse them. We unravel them, we change them. And this is one of the examples. Here the word natural is being used as a synonym for the way that God intended or purposed in creation. Verse 26 identifies the activity associated with the example he calls dishonorable passions. Women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And in case we don't understand what Paul means here, he continues to describe it as men gave up natural relations, same term, with women and were consumed with passions for one another, committing shameless acts with men. There's a clarity here to what he, about same-sex relationships. It's, it's not to be missed, but I want to just address four objections you, have, you may have listening to this uh, because I think it'll help unpack some things that are in the text. One objection might be this. Paul means that people should not go against their sexual orientation here. That's, that's you know, the objection that people will offer. I just want to think about that for a second. Let me try to say it clearly. The idea of sexual orientation is a misnomer. It's a cultural construction. It's a, it's a term that people have made up to describe, try to describe an experience. It's a linguistic trick, in a sense, to try and make something that is not in accordance with God's creation and purposes of flourishing and make it seem to be natural for that individual. Paul doesn't acknowledge that category, and he doesn't seem to be particularly concerned with, with that. He's describing reality as is, not how people want to use terms to describe it, right? So, so here, sexual orientation uh, is kind of a, a misnomer. As we learned in our first point, um, you know, the, the, this is sort of a reordering of creation, to fit our own desires that Paul is calling here for us to have insight into. Instead of reordering creation and using a term like that, Paul would say, as we examine our experience and our desires on this and a whole host of other issues, but particularly as he focuses here, he would, he would say we should use what he just said and have the insight that same-sex attraction and sexual desire are one of the many desires and passions that people experience that are contrary to God's purposes in creation. As we learned in our first point, that is a part of the effect of sin. So that's the first, Paul means that we should do that. He's not even aiming at that, and he's made, and he's made it clear by using the fundamental categories he does, that we should examine our desires first and what the creator teaches about them and think about them from that perspective rather than just using a sort of modern term that distracts us from what's going on. So that's the first one. The second, second objection, this is just Paul. Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality. Well, Jesus says a lot about marriage. We, we read in Mark 10, and lots of people offer this objection. If you are on social media, you're going to hear this objection all the time. But I do need to remind you of something. Jesus chose Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's writing a letter to a Gentile church. He, in that apostolic role, was to be a voice for what Jesus cared about. He has now sent Paul to the nations to represent his gospel message, of which there's a possibility that they might live in a culture where they're tempted to be ashamed of it, and Paul is declaring it here, Jesus' view, with boldness, as his emissary and voice. There's no way around it that this is the biblical, biblically consistent view that Paul is representing 
here. That's important to note. The third objection is, God made me this way. Now, I, I just want to say this with as much sensitivity as I possibly can. To go a little deeper, as people have wrestled with this topic over the years, it has been common to say something like, if I wasn't meant to pursue a gay or les lesbian relationship, why would God have made me this way? It's a, it's a valid question, honestly. But one I think scripture instructs us about. That maybe we're misunderstanding what we determine, what we think God did, versus what sin has wrought, what, what living in a world under the fall has, has caused to take effect. And so I think we have to be much more careful as Christians to make sure we hear through that question what we need to do. And let me kind of press into that. It's a question that we should always approach with gentleness and compassion. But in a passage like this, it's important for us to zoom out and see what we can learn about an idea like this. Did God make some of us this way? The passage sort of answers the question already. We, you know, it, the first section answered it for us. Sin moves into our will, our mind, our places of desire, and puts out of order what God has intended in creation. So if we start there, and, and we're saying it feels that, that God made me this way, we, we're misunderstanding the effect that sin has had in the world and on our lives particularly. The best way to understand our inward desire and propensities about this or any other subject is to think about the overall storyline of the Bible. Now, there's a slide that's going to be up on the screen, and I just kind of want to help you now think about where do my desires come from, not just on this topic, but just about any other topic. Notice we've got, first of all, this is what we would call the theology of redemption. Categories of God's story of redeeming work in the world that begin with creation, where he called all things good, which include the realities that have come with the fall into sin, which introduce the promise, power, and goodness of redemption in Jesus, but wait for the coming power and ultimate saving work of the resurrection of the dead, in which we will receive bodies like unto Jesus' glorious body. This is the hope of the good news, right? Now let's think about that. So when God, uh, God creates us, he makes us the sort of people who would have desires that are generally in keeping with creation. And so we would see that we have impulses towards things that will make us flourish, desires for bravery and love and service and all sorts of things that we would call honorable desires. And so desires are not necessarily a bad thing, nor are feelings, nor are any of those things. But when, when we get to the introduction of the fall into sin and ever since Adam's sin and the pervasion of sin into the world, it means that there are other types of desires that are coupled with them. That fall takes effect on us. It's, it's something that has happened. The fall into sin and entrance of sin into the world in our lives means that we've been affected by sin from the very beginning of our lives. Our desires, and I just want you to hear this really clearly, our desires are rooted in a combination of our physical bodies, which experience different kinds of brokenness in the world. Our desires are affected by the effects of other people's sin on our lives, which we don't always understand. The effects of our sin on our lives, which we don't always understand fully, and a sin nature that leaves us separated in significant ways from God and not particularly thinking in alignment with his design and purposes. By the time we are really conscious of, the, of significant things, these factors are already at work in us and God's created will and order are undermined by them. 
That produces all varieties of sinful desire that Paul is describing here. And this is a Christian doctrine of sin. This is nothing new. This is nothing surprising. This is just what the Bible lays out for us. And so what we should understand is that fall has, has taken place. And God began his redeeming work and really uh, brought it to a zenith in the cross of Jesus Christ. When he took on flesh and lived in the midst of our world, not with a sin nature of his own because he was born of a virgin Mary, but suffering under the effects of, of sin and dealing with those effects on his own body, the weakness of death. And yet Jesus made our promise of redemption, paid for our sin, removes guilt and shame for all past sin, ways that our feelings and desires are in misalignment, and gives us hope that we can be forgiven, and we can know that we're welcome before God and experience the genuineness of his love. In redemption, Jesus not only pays for the guilt of our sin, he promises us a love and belonging in his family. He unites us to God and God's genuine love and reception of us, even in our brokenness as we turn to him in repentance. He provides the Holy Spirit for power to resist sinful desire. He begins renewing the various things that sin has broken and touched. But I want you to realize we live in a moment where all three of those things are at work. So the boxes aren't clean in your life or mine in the types of desires that you have. And so that means that Christians experience sinful desires that are contrary to God's will, don't they? Right? Because the effects of the fall on the world are still at work and at play in, in the habits of our own bodies, in our sinful pasts, in all sorts of other ways in which we soak in it in the world, those things are still in effect. We also feel the hauntingly good nature of creation in the joys and meaning of relationships and the beauty of, uh, of what we see in the world and all of those things there. And we taste the promises of redemption as the Holy Spirit begins renewing us, working in us, strengthening us, helping us to hope in Christ. But until the day we are risen with Christ, we will feel all of those effects. Now we're promised that the Holy Spirit matures and sanctifies us. But, but Paul is going to be clear in the rest of this book that our ultimate hope of redemption, of, of, of having a life where all of my inward desires align with God's will is found in the day when I'm made fully new at the vision of Christ when my body is raised like his glorious body and I'm free from all the effects of sin. That is our hope. That is why we don't sell easy believism around here. It is our hope and it's why we don't promise that everything's going to get better when you just put your trust in Christ. There is a journey to take of submitting and being shaped by his will as we come under God's word and we long and wait in anticipation for the day when we leave, in a sense, this world that is not our home for a land and hope and renewal and resurrection where we're free we belong. We feel that sense of communion with God. It's our salvation. Fully realized. That is where our hope is. A genuine Christian lives now where the promises of redemption are operable through faith in Christ. The effects of the fall are still felt because we've not experienced the fullness of that redemption. And the beauty of creation still holds out to us God's purpose and design, which will be restored and fulfilled in us. 
That is where your hope is. Placing confidence in your creator, honoring him, and entrusting yourselves to him. It's a sure and growing and steady hope that will never leave you disappointed in the end. The way sin always does. That is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel in the face of opposition by the surrounding culture in Rome. And it's why we should not be ashamed of the gospel now. Apart from turning to Christ in the gospel though, the end of this passage gives us a warning. We're going to end with it. The third thing that happens when we're given over is we insist that our sin be celebrated. We insist that our sin be celebrated. To make sure that we realize that verses 26 and 27 are an example of what Paul is talking about and not the primary problem. I think people need is the gospel, not our culture war, just to make that clear to everybody. But to make sure that we realize that he's just using an example here of some other things that maybe many more of us feel the effects of in regards to sin, he listed that whole litany of things we read. (laughs) And we found ourselves in there, didn't we? (laughs) We heard our name called in there. A shoe that fits (laughs) that we have to wear. In the text, all manner of unrighteousness, he says, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, All of these are rooted in disordered desire and sin. Gossip. Disordered desire for knowledge, even if it hurts people. Slander. Hatred toward God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And if we're honest, we can all find ourselves often in this list. And they're a part of the many other ways in which people give themselves over to dishonorable passions and do things in their bodies that are shameless acts of rebellion towards God. But what does it look like to be given over to our sin? He says, instead of repenting and seeking God's mercy and forgiveness, we not only do them, notice how he ends, but give approval to those who do. The human heart seeks approval even in sin. We love approval. Now maybe you find this hard to understand, but what Paul is saying is that the alternative to repentance and acknowledging God, centering our lives on Him, surrendering to Him, and trusting in Christ, is that we encourage the celebration of what God calls sin. Whether in Rome or in our day, there's no new thing under the sun. Listen listen to what he says. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things, those things listed in 28 and 29 and 30, deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Whether in Rome or in our day, there's no new thing under the sun. Whether in our personal lives or in the culture at large, we push to celebrate what we will not repent of. It's a way of covering over the guilt and shame that we know that goes with our sin and it's part of the sinful human condition where we convince God that He is wrong and He must serve us. When He says doesn't matter what variety of sin you've been affected with, you're welcome to come home. I'll put things back in order. Listen, you don't have to figure, I, I just want to make a plea to you, you do not have to figure out how to put things back in order in your life. You can't. You see, we need to believe sin wrecks us deep enough that only God puts us back together. That's why we have such a thin view of proclaiming the gospel. 
Because we expect that we can do it by our cultural positions rather than a proclamation of God's word in the gospel, a clarity of his word, letting God's Holy Spirit do a transformative work that only he can do. And so our first priority is always to proclaim the good news of the gospel that every sinner can repent and come to him, but we must remember sinners repent and come to him if they're going to have hope for salvation. We have good news. God welcomes all of us. He holds out his arms of welcome to invite us to turn from our sin. But if we insist that our sin be celebrated, there's not hope in the gospel for us until we're willing for God to be the all-important center of our universe and our hope. Until we say, with the song that we sang, above everything else, Jesus is better. I'll hope in him and find him to be my satisfaction. No matter the storm that may come, no matter the challenges I face, no matter the shame that might be heaped upon me, he alone is my rock, my portion forever. The gospel says we must make Jesus our portion above all else. And when when Jesus becomes our portion, everything else in life is in play for him to change. That's our hope. What do we do with this? Well, listen, I want to say a few practical things as we close. Listen, people are more than their sin. Never forget it. See yourself as a sinner before you see the sin of others. Paul is concerned about the wreckage of human abandonment of God's glory and honor in every form. He uses examples, but he counts us all in the same predicament with a similar problem. And if you're quick to see and condemn the sin of others, stop and give greater concern to your own. That we might be a holy people, separated from our sin, feeling the difficulty of it with one another as we walk in faith. That'll give us a compassion for every type of sinner, especially ourselves. Second, never celebrate what God forbids. The last point reminds us that we avoid the weight of guilt and shame by fooling ourselves into affirming all sorts of sin. We will be given all sorts of opportunities in our lives to celebrate sin, but live to honor God above all else. Lastly, if you don't know where to start, start with just turning to God. He is our hope. I know it sounds simple, but the starting point today and the starting point of our problems in life are a separation and distance from God. Seek the Lord above all else as worthy of your life's honor and then examine everything in life in light of God's purpose and instruction. If the gospel that you've heard today seems strange to you, I want to invite you to turn from your sin to put your hope in Christ. If, if today you realize that you've had a very different understanding of the effect of sin in your own life and the hope of the good news that Jesus has won for you and today you need to just express to him, Lord, I, I want to put my trust in that promise, that redeeming good news. Today is the day for you to turn. Trust his power. Just take the step towards him of entrusting yourself to him and put your faith in what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. I trust and believe, and I've seen it actually over and over, how God puts lives back together when we set them before him in faith and hope. I love you guys. I want you to be as equipped as possible to live in this world. I want you to not be ashamed of the gospel. And I want you to be compassionate and insightful and kind and tender 
to people who are in pain and difficulty as effects of sin in the world have hurt all of us. That we would carry ourselves with the gentleness of Jesus that says, just put your burden down, come to me. I want us to be equipped with the kind of confidence in God's word that would allow us then to live with compassion. In a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper, and that, that supper is a testimony that there's a greater relationship and, and family that God creates through His Spirit as we trust in Him. And if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we want you to know you're a part of a family. And today, as we take the bread and the cup, we're celebrating a meal where God has invited us and gathered us around His table to experience the joy of knowing His love. If that's you today, we invite you to take the elements. If you don't believe these things, we would encourage you, don't go through the formality. But that you would continue to wrestle with the deep things of God that we see in his word and gain clarity in the gospel. In a moment, we're going to have our worship team come and sing. I want to lead us in prayer before, and then you can get the elements if you didn't on the way in. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would shape and mold us. Lord, will you... By your spirit, affirm what is true and good in our lives. Would you grant us compassion and humility? Would you teach us? Lord, I pray that as we gather around the table, that you would remind us that we belong with you. That you're a father who longs to welcome us into your house. And that one day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. In Jesus' name, amen.